Amen. Uh, we're going to be in Acts 26, and what's been a, a recurring theme throughout the last several weeks that we've not really addressed is the resurrection of Christ. Um, we, we've heard it at different points. We've maybe kind of glossed over it. So this week I want to deal specifically with several different mentions throughout the text about the resurrection of Christ and how it applies of why Paul is on trial and how the resurrected Christ has transformed him. And, and honestly, most all of us have some type of inner longing, desire, thought of eternal life and afterlife, so to speak. Um, and it, you, you may wonder, why is that happening? Uh, sorry, sometimes you got to be in dad mode too. Um, sorry, kind of got me off for a moment. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, yeah, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Um, uh, the, the writer says there that God has set eternity in the hearts of all people. And so if you wonder, why do I think about what's going to happen when I die? Why do I wonder and sometimes sit around and think, like, is there more than this? What might happen? Well, maybe you have someone that you love that's gone on and you think about them and where they are. And it's not by happen, happen chance. Um, the Bible tells us that God has created you and I for eternity. He has given us an everlasting soul, a, a life that is to live beyond this life and and so what we begin to see is, is that Jesus' resurrection literally becomes the hope of this promise. And what you're going to see today is, is this promise, this hope of this resurrection of a life beyond this one, didn't begin when Jesus showed up on the scene. In fact, this has been rooted all the way back, not only into Israel's past, and that's what Paul's going to deal with some, that's going to be the basis of his argument, but this is really who God is, that there is an eternal God who desires to have an eternal relationship with you. Not just temporary here on the earth. He desires to dwell with you forever. And that's why we see the climax coming there at the end of Revelation. When it begins to tell us in Revelation 21, it says, And now behold, the dwelling of God is with man, with humanity. He says he will be their God and they will be his people. The climax of what God has long desired, that sin is separated. God desires for an eternal relationship with you. And it necessitated the sending of his son. So let's, let's pick up with Paul. Um, as you make your way to Acts 26, uh, here was just a passage from a previous few weeks ago that we walked um, through this chapter of Acts 25. But this was one of the questions, right? King Agrippa had come on the scene, and, and Felix and Festus, these different governors, wanted to kind of handle the mantle off to the other. And they're saying, listen, we've got to send Paul to Rome, but we need some official charges. And part of what the discussion was was this statement. He says, rather they had certain points, verse 19 of Acts 25, of dispute with him, with Paul, about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead. But Paul asserted, or Paul claimed to be alive. He says, listen, the battle is over the fact that there is some guy that the Romans crucified on a cross. He's dead, but Paul's claiming this guy who died on the cross is actually alive. And they're arguing and battling over this. And Paul's going to say that. Look, if you would, pick up with me. We're going to ask maybe three questions today. The first one is this. Why is Paul on trial? Right? Like, why is Paul on trial? We remember that Paul got in trouble for bringing Gentiles into the, into the temple. And you'd say, well, that's why he is. Yeah, that's what stirred up the issue. But it's rooted much deeper than that. And listen to what Paul, he's going to give us the answer. Why is Paul here on trial? Why is this taking place? Why will Paul ultimately go to Caesar there in Rome? Verse 6 of Acts 26 Paul says, I, and now I stand here on trial. Look, so, so we have clarity. Why is he on trial? Well, he tells us, he says, because, because of what? Well, look what he says here. My hope in the promise. All right, so he's got a hope. 
It's specific. He says it's in the promise that was made by God to our fathers. So he says, Paul says, I want you to know why I'm on trial. I have a hope in a promise. I have a hope that there is a promise that God has made to our fathers, looking back to the 12 tribes of Israel, back to Abraham, looking ultimately back all the way to the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve when, when he says that surely Genesis 3 says, from the seed of a woman there is going to arise a, 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 a Messiah, a Savior, who is going to crush the head of the enemy, who is going to crush Satan, who is going to crush sin and deceit and everything that poses itself against God. And Paul says, listen, guys, I want you to know why I'm on trial. It's more than just Gentiles. It's more than just breaking rules. I want you to know the Savior has come. I want you to know that there's a hope now that I have that I can dwell with God forever. And it's not because I can obey enough rules. Like in our vernacular, we might say it's not because I can go to church enough. I can't memorize enough Bible verses. I can't do enough good at Awana. I can't drive enough buses. I can't clean enough buildings. I can't go on enough mission trips. I can't give enough money. None of that will give me a perfect standing before God. But Jesus, who died for my sin and who was raised again, who now sits at the right hand of the Father, who according to Hebrews 7 says that He ever lives to intercede for you and I, it says that that one, He now is my hope. He's the fulfillment of what everything and everyone has ever longed for, to be with God forever. And He says it's found in one person, and that person is Jesus. But look what He says here. I think it's interesting. Notice He says it's my hope. I want to ask you this morning, what, is it your hope? Because if we're not careful, it can be mom's hope. It could be grandpa or granny's hope, or it could be our spouse's hope, or it could be your parents' hope, or it could be even maybe, for some of you, it could be even a, a, your children's hope. I mean, it could be your best friend's hope. It could be the person that invites you to church's hope. But I'm asking you a certain question here. Is it your hope? Paul says it's mine, guys. This has become personal to me, that Christ has come. And so Paul's telling us, you want to know why I'm on trial? Well, I'm on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers. It's personal. So that kind of brings the second question is this. What is the promise that God made to our fathers, right? So if Paul's on trial because of this promise, then we ought to know what the promise is. What's so important that's brought Paul to this point and really is showing over the entirety of his life? What has got Paul to the point that he's really willing to die? I mean, why would someone be willing to die? That's, a, that's an important question. So we're asking it. What's the promise made to the fathers? What is Paul on trial for? So back to the text. Look what he says. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers. Verse 7. All right, this is significant. We're going to kind of build on this in a moment. But he says, to which, right? So again, talking about this promise. To which our 12 tribes. Look at here. And this is interesting. So Paul has hope. But also they have hope. And they're hoping to attain it. So the 12 tribes of Israel, looking back to the people of Israel, the people of God, all the way back in the Old Testament, throughout that narrative that unfolded all throughout history, leading to Christ and the cross, these people were after something. They were hoping for something, and they wanted to attain it. What is that that they're hoping to attain? Look at me further. As they earnestly worship night and day, verse 7 again of Acts 26, and for this hope, I'm accused by Jews, O king. So Paul says, this hope that I have has now got me in trouble. And then he asks this statement. This kind of gives us some clarity. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God does what? He raises the dead. 
That's the hope, right? This raises the dead, helps us understand what the hope is and what the fulfillment is of the promise, right? The promise was the resurrection of the dead, that there is hope beyond this life. That is what the people of Israel are hoping to attain. They are desiring for a better life, one that is not just simply here on this earth. They are looking for something fuller, something greater, something more. And he says, listen, I want you guys to see it's the hope of God raising the dead. Now, what's interesting about the hope is and the difference between Paul and the people of Israel is, is the Israelites realize that there's a resurrection coming. Okay, they're looking forward to this resurrection, this day when God will return. There's going to be the raising of the dead. This has been their hope. But what the confusion is, is the fact that God already began the resurrection with his son. That's the confusion. Like, how did God already begin this resurrection? They're wanting the same hope. They're wanting to attain, right, the same thing. They want an afterlife. They want more. They want to be with God forever. But Paul's saying, listen, guys, we already agree that we're all after something more, a life beyond this world, so to speak. But I want you to know that it's not incredible that God has already begun to raise the dead. That God's already began this work of a new life. And so let's get a little bit more clarity on this. We're going to rewind back into Acts for a moment. Acts 13. Listen to what Paul says. Paul is speaking here. And he says, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the Father. So again, let's, let's kind of come after this. So again, we have God's promise. Right? Remember the statement there, to the Father. So it's the same thing that we heard back in Acts 26. So same thing we're talking about. But he gives a little bit more clarity on this. Look what he says. This he has what? He's fulfilled, so God's fulfilled His promise to us, their children, by doing what? By raising Jesus. Do you see it? The promise has been fulfilled, and how did it happen? By doing what? Raising Jesus. That's the promise that was always looked forward to. That there is a life beyond this one. He cites the second psalm there, You are my son, today I have begotten you. He says, listen guys, I want you to know that God is faithful god is faithful to his promise and how do we know that by the raising of jesus by the fact that his son has been raised it provides us a future hope that we too could be a part of this promise do you see that that's why paul's saying my life has totally been changed i hated i hated anyone that was a follower of christ i would put them in prison i would even vote to have them killed i went to different cities trying to drag them put them in prison but now my hope has changed why because the light has shined right i saw the light so to speak he says and i realized that the fulfillment of my deepest longing you're in my deepest longing that there could be life beyond this one have you ever thought about that most of you probably have Again, Ecclesiastes 3 says God set eternity in our hearts. But most of you, how many of you have lost someone that you love? They've died, is what I'm asking the question. Do you think a lot about being back with them? Emily and I were driving home last night late, and I just, I just whispered to her, man, I miss my dad. It's like almost daily, I just find myself thinking, I can't wait. There is a life coming of no more sickness, no more separation. You and I, the very thing that you long for, Christ has secured it. Paul says, this is my hope. He is my hope. The resurrection of the dead, and it's found in Jesus Christ. And so you might be asking, why is Paul talking about all this anyway? I mean, I get Jesus is great, he raised from the dead, but why? Well, if you know the context of Acts 26, if you are with us last week, Remember Paul, for the last time in the book of Acts, gave his personal testimony. 
And Paul declares that on that Damascus road, who showed up to him? Jesus did. And Jesus, who had been crucified, but now raised. And what Paul is doing is saying, guys, what I'm getting ready to tell you, all right? And so we walked through it last week, so we kind of rewind in the text. But that resurrected Christ, this shouldn't blow your mind. Why do you think it's incredible that God raises the dead? This is what all of our 12 tribes, this is what the hope has been built on. This is what we've all been longing for. So Paul is using the Old Testament to establish to them the validity and the rationality of the fact that there could actually be a resurrection and it could have begun with Jesus. And so now he's saying when Jesus shows up and appears to me, it's not so strange, right? This is not such a crazy moment that someone that's died and now he's been raised, right? And so he's using all of that to bring us forward. Let's fast forward a little bit more in the text. Acts 26 again is where we are this week. Um, look with, if you would, begin in verse 22. We're going to hopefully come back to this if the Lord wills. When, uh, if we return back October 22nd, we'll, we'll come back into this text some. But um, look, what he, look what he says here in verse 22 of Acts 26. Again, this is Paul. He's on trial uh, before King Agrippa especially. He says, To this day I've had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great. Look what he says here. This is interesting. Saying... Nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. Well, what the prophets and Moses say would come to pass? Well, look what he says here. That the Christ must suffer. Right? The fulfillment of passages like Isaiah 53. Right? It was the will of the Lord to crush him and to cause him to suffer. Right? We all, like sheep, have done what? Do you remember? We've all gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him. The iniquity of us all. So passages like that declare that the Christ must suffer. But not only that he must suffer, it also says he must be the first to rise from the dead. We're going to come to that in a moment. But he says, listen, I want you to know that there is a future resurrection coming. And places like Psalm 16, verse 10 says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that's the grave, to death, or let your Holy One see corruption. Peter cites this on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Acts 13, Paul uses this very passage and declaring that Jesus Christ must have been raised from the dead. It was necessitated by passages like this that he would not let his Holy One see corruption. He says, listen guys, I want you to know this long-awaited hope, this is it. It's come in Christ. Listen, I don't know about you, but maybe you're here today and you'd say you've been trying to live for your own kingdom. And maybe today you could just kind of give a testimony of the fact that that hadn't worked out very well. That living for your own kingdom is really temporary. In fact, some of you have already experienced how temporary that can be. It was snatched out, the rug was pulled from underneath your foot, feet, that, that financial thing that you thought was perfect is gone, that relationship that you invested everything in is now is gone, it's walked away. Whatever it is, you would have to say that, listen, there is always in this life a kingdom that's temporary. And Paul's saying, I want you guys to know that there's actually an eternal kingdom. That that's why Jesus says in Matthew 6 and 33, Seek ye first, what? The kingdom of God, righteousness, and everything else will be added to you as well. He says, why? Because there's a kingdom that's so much greater than the one you and I could ever build on our own. It's an eternal kingdom. And so that brings us to our third and final question. I want to spend the majority of our time today as we look at this text. And that's this question. So what's the resurrection have to do with me? 
Right. So if Paul is on trial because of his hope and a promise, and then we ask the question, well, what is that promise? And the promise was that there's going to be a resurrection, right? That Jesus has been raised from the dead, that we too could be raised. Then I have to ask a question. What does that have to do with me? And this is where it gets really cool, really interesting as you and I begin to journey in this. So watch look what he says here back to our text. Acts chapter 26. Look, what he says, verse 23. That the Christ must suffer and that being the first, this is interesting, to rise from the dead. He says, listen, he's being the first. Now the word first there used, if you understand a little bit about the original languages, it's using for preeminence. It's saying, listen, are there other people that have been raised in the Bible before Jesus? Absolutely. But there's never been anyone like Jesus. Like his resurrection's different than everyone else. Well, how do you mean, Blake? Well, everyone else in the Bible that was raised from the dead, guess what? They died again. But Jesus, he is raised to never die again. He was, as 1 Peter 1 and 3 talks about the fact that you and I have a living hope. He is never, he's never going to die again. And so he's the first. He is the most important is what Paul is saying. But he is also different than anyone else. Why? Because he will never die again. Look further with me. Look what he says. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15. He uses similar wording. But in fact, he says, Christ, okay, so let's look at this. Christ has been raised from the dead. And then let's see this word, first, right? So what we just saw, but then he sees something else different. He's the first what? First fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And fallen asleep means what? They've died, right? They've taken the siesta, the ultimate one. They've died, right? Look what he says, though. Again, let's just talk about this moment. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. Uh, First Corinthians 15, maybe the most clarity we have on the resurrection and its implication for us. Um, beautiful passage. I encourage you to take time and study. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So Christ, his resurrection, is indeed the first fruits. Now, for many of you, this right here is going to hopefully bring some real connection. I am not very agriculturally inclined, say to, to say the least, Okay. But many of you, you, you farm, you have gardened, um, maybe some of you are, are, you cultivate plants. And so I want to ask you a question based upon your knowledge, right? So you have experiential knowledge. We, we, have, we have what God's Word says here, and now we're going to say, how might that marry with our experiences in everyday life? For you all that are farmers, that um, you have your green thumb, so to speak, your gardeners, whatever, or you grew up with that, your grandparents did it, you know a little bit about it. Tell me in, in this moment, maybe this, hopefully this fits. When you, the crop begins early, right? You see your first fruits. And the first fruits are good. What's that usually tell you about the remainder of the crops? They're going to be what? Has that been true for most of you? If you had that by experience, would you just raise your hand? Then when the first crops start good, they use the rest of them. Now that's, there's probably some exceptions to that. I get that. So what's Paul saying here? He's saying that, listen, Jesus... He's the first fruit. He's the first fruit of the resurrection. And you want, listen, this is what he's saying here. He says, I want to just kind of pull a connection, and then we'll, we'll maybe flesh it out a little bit more. For as in Adam, verse 22 there, for as in Adam all die, so also, look, this is specific, in Christ, all right, so they, they must be in Christ, shall all be made alive. 
So he's saying, listen, guys, uh, when you begin to look at the first fruits and you see good fruit coming on the vine or the, bl- the bl- first blossoms of what you planted or uh, when you walk in the garden and you begin to see that first fruits, your crop is starting to look good. And you're like, man, this is going to be an awesome year. Right. It starts to give you some kind of indication of that. He says, listen, I want you to know in the same way Christ is the first fruit. Christ is the first fruit. Why? Because his resurrection guarantees your resurrection. Do you see that? That if you are in Christ right there, Christ's resurrection guarantees your resurrection. So when you look and wonder, what's the big deal about Jesus being raised from the dead? I know we celebrate on Easter. We get really jacked up about that. But like, why are we so excited? Because his hope has become your hope. His resurrection is the first fruit. It guarantees that you too will be raised. Not only, look at a couple things. Physically, Jesus was raised no more to die again. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, He suffered for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he'll never die again. Physically, when you begin to look at Jesus' resurrection, and you are, again, you are in Christ, you begin to realize, dude, what did that guy go through on the cross? Right? Some of you may have studied this past week in Sunday school. The scourging. Right, Literally, they beat him to the place that Jesus was in such a condition after the scourging, after they had beaten him. Could he carry his own cross? Who helped him? Who they called to help him? Simon of Cyrene, right? Jesus is in such a condition. And then he's there on the cross, and literally he's experiencing, I don't know if you know it or not, but the word excruciating literally means out of the cross. As soon as I learned that, I said, God, let me never use that word again. I'll never be in excruciating pain. Literally, it means out of the cross. And he's there. And then after his death to ensure that he was dead, do you remember what the Roman soldiers did? They pierced his side, didn't they? Right, they pierced him. And here's the amazing thing. That after all of that, this guy shows up in a resurrected body and he's perfect. Think about all your ailments, your diseases, your infirmities, the things that are hurting right now, the things that you maybe took medication for this morning, all the things that you're struggling with. And he's the first fruit. And you know what he went through. How awful, how bad, how terrible, how mainly. Some of you may have lost loved ones. And they went through something pretty catastrophic. Their death was bad. All right, Some of you probably have some pretty horrific stories. But for those that are in Christ, their resurrection is going to be just like his. Do you see it? He has been overcome death. No more sickness. No more frailty. No more of the beatings. No more of all the things that were there. It's a beautiful moment. But not only is there the physical resurrection that his first fruit guarantees, there's also spiritual. The one that became sin is raised pure, holy. That you that are in Christ today, when you begin to think about resurrection and an afterlife, if your hope is in him, your faith is in him, your trust, that you're saying, God, there's nothing else I can bring. God, I come and my pockets before you are empty. I have nothing to offer. But God, I am trusting only in your son. God says, I'm satisfied with that. I am so satisfied with your faith and your trust and your hope only in my son. Spiritually, you were raised to never sin again. That's big. You, if you are in Christ, you will be raised to never sin again. That's how great this resurrection is. You see, that's why Paul is saying, this is my hope. This is my promise. And look what he says further to him. 
back here, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first, verse 23 of Acts 26, by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Christ proclaims light. He's indeed the light of the world. This is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. If you would, look with me if you would just for a moment in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 42, beginning in verse 6. He's going to be a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind. That kind of reminds us of last week. If you were with us last week, do you remember what Paul's commission was? Do you remember what it said there? Paul too was called to open eyes. Right? So that what? They may turn from the darkness to the light, from the power of Satan to God. This was similar to Paul's proclamation. This was his responsibility too. And he says, listen, Christ has come to open eyes that they could turn from the darkness to the light. Furthermore, in Luke chapter 24, after Jesus has been raised from the dead, he now appears with the disciples in the upper room. And beginning in verse 44, it says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Do you notice that's the same thing Paul's doing back here in Acts 26? He's just following Jesus' example. Are you? Rather than trying to reinvent everything, are you just being faithful to follow Jesus' example of sharing as he shared, of looking to God's word, letting that be your authority, not your own ideas as you try to witness? You're just trusting the gospel. That's what Jesus did. He's just trusting back in the word of God, using the word of God to, to proclaim the fact that it must be fulfilled, that the Christ would suffer and rise. And in this moment, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Right? He's proclaiming the light, allowing them by the grace of God that they would begin to understand and realize what's happening. But further, back in Isaiah, look what he says here. Remember, he says that, listen, I'm a, he's a light to the nations to open the eyes that are blind. Look at this, it's interesting, verse 7. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. From the prison, those who sit in darkness. Now, Isaiah is speaking about the Babylonian captivity, that the people of Israel are going to be drawn out, that God's going to rescue them. But he's using that physical example to describe a spiritual reality. And it's saying that when the light for the nations comes, when the Savior comes, he's going to deliver you and deliver me from spiritual bondage. He's saying that you don't have to live in the darkness anymore. You don't have to be enslaved to live like everybody else has lived. You don't have to walk around in the dark just doing whatever your flesh desires anymore. He says, I want you to know that God is going to come and send His Son to rescue you and I, to deliver us from the bondage, to deliver us from the days when it feels like the clouds will never go away. He says, I want you to know there is a God who's going to deliver you that are sitting in darkness. And some of you are there today. Just sitting in darkness, you feel like it will never change. This will never go away. This darkness will never end. He says, I want you to know a light is coming. And the light's name is Jesus. And therefore, by the power of Christ, you and I can be delivered from the dungeon and the prison that you and I are in, enslaved to our sin in the midst of some awful situation that you may find yourself. There is hope and that freedom. You say, well, how does he do that? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us, he says, verse 14 of Hebrews 2, Since therefore the children share in his flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death, look at this, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Who is the one that has the power of death here? The devil, Satan, right? Verse 14 of Hebrews 2. 
And then look what he says here. This is beautiful. Connects us back to our passage in Isaiah. And deliver all who those who through fear of death. And this is, come on, this is most everybody here. I don't know anybody that's not concerned at some point. At some point in life. Now you may have come to Christ and you don't have that fear anymore. Right? You may have that as Romans 5 tells us. We therefore now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We now have peace since we've been justified, he said, by faith. But look what he says. He delivered all. All, I love that. What a moment. All those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. That's it, right? Sitting in the darkness, the prisoners, right? The prison, the dungeon, all that. Back in Isaiah 42, it says that Jesus came to deliver you and I from that. His death has become your death. His resurrection from the dead has become your resurrection. His righteousness by faith has become your righteousness. His joy, His peace has become your joy and peace by faith, by trusting Him. It has all been accomplished. He has destroyed the power of death. Do you see that? Your greatest fear, death, what's going to happen to me when I die? Jesus came to destroy it. He broke it. He overcame it. And He's the first fruit. But if your faith and trust is in Him, then you can begin to look at Him and say, Oh, how wonderful, oh, how marvelous is my Savior's love for me. Well, Isaiah 49 speaks similar to this, and this is where we'll come to our conclusion today. It says that in... um, Let's begin in verse 4. But I said I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing. This week I read this passage here on Monday morning and um, God's allowed me several opportunities this week to share this. This is the prophet Isaiah who had the great vision of God in Isaiah 6 who sees the glory of God and now comes to Isaiah 49 and he feels like he's worthless. He's a failure. He doesn't make any difference. You ever been there? Yeah. I thought that kind of captured well for me when I read that this week. That's kind of how 2017's felt. Haven't seen many people saved. Not only preaching ministry, but just like in just my individual life. I'm just witnessing, sharing the gospel with people. It's been some challenging moments in leadership. I had to make some hard decisions. Sometimes I look at it and think, Lord, I'm not sure I make any difference. God, I mean, Lord, if maybe there's somebody else that could better lead this church. God, maybe there's somebody else. Lord, I know there's people that communicate so much more clearly than I can, God. I mean, Lord, maybe you would just want somebody else. God, if that's what you're doing, Lord, then just pull me out of the way. I don't want anything to ever hinder your glory, your plan to reach the, the empower these people, to strengthen these people, to raise them up. But these are honest moments, aren't they? I mean, this is Isaiah being honest, saying, I feel like a failure. So if you've ever felt like that, I, I'm being honest. I've struggled with that. It's been a hard 2017. I compel you to look to this text and we're going to see. But I had a beautiful moment. It was several weeks back. We were in staff meeting. We were all just praying together, praying specifically for you guys, the ministries and the people. In the midst of praying, um, as we were together, just as staff praying together, God whispered to me, the Spirit spoke and said, Blake, 2 Timothy 4. And in 2 Timothy 4, Paul tells young Timothy, preach the word in season and what? Out of season. I said, Blake, right now you're out of season, bro. So you going to quit preaching? you going to quit witnessing? It's out of season. It's hard right now. You're not, seeing, you're not seeing maybe the fruit that you had hoped to see. You're not seeing people's lives transformed like maybe you had hoped to see in your witnessing. You're not seeing your family. You're praying. You're crying out to me day after day. So my question to you, Blake, is this. Will you stop being faithful out of season? 
And I'm asking you the same question. Do you feel like a loser, a failure? You've totally blown what you'd hoped to do to witness to your family or to a coworker or to somebody else. I mean, you, you, this is the prophet Isaiah. And he says, I feel like a failure. Then look with me, if you would. This is where we're going to close. It's a beautiful moment. And he says, again, this text right here, this is where we're connecting back to where we were earlier. I will make you as a light for the nations. That's our connection, right? Why do we go this passage? Is it just pulling out of the air? No. He's saying the same thing here. But look what happens here. It's a beautiful moment. Um, verse 8. Thus says the Lord, look at this moment here, in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. What's God saying? It's not your timing. It's not my timing. It's whose timing? God's timing. And the danger is in the very hard moments is to quit being faithful. That's why Galatians 6 and 9 reminds us, don't become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, you will what? You're going to reap a harvest. If you don't what? Give up. And that's really hard in the hard moments. It's the tendency to give up, to take the towel, throw it in, to say, I'm done. I'm done with this marriage. I'm done trying to witness to my friends. I'm done praying for them. I'm done serving. I'm done with this church. I'm done with the leadership. I'm done with my parents. I'm done with whatever it is. I'm done with this country. I'm done with God, maybe. I mean, maybe you feel that way. Listen to what he says. In a time of favor, God is going to answer. You say, Blake, I don't know. I'm not sure I can trust that. Look at this. Rewind with me. This is where it closed. Verse Verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servants of rulers, this person that feels helpless and hopeless. Look what he says. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord, what? Who is faithful. That's it. There's a God who's faithful, guys. There is a God who's faithful. And that brings us back to where Paul has been today. His hope is in a God who is faithful. How faithful? He gave His Son to die for you and I that we could live with Him forever. A God who made a promise that there would be a life forever and ever. And He raised His Son from the dead to prove it. A God who is faithful that your hope can be in Him. That no matter what you're experiencing today, no matter what may come, you can hope and trust in Him. Listen, it's not about having perfect faith today. None of us here have perfect enough faith. That's why Hebrews 12 says that He is the author and what? Perfecter of our faith. The finisher of our faith. You'll never have perfect enough faith. It is just coming right where you are and saying, Oh God, you see how weak I am? Lord, increase my faith. But God, I am putting all my faith and trust in You. God, You are my hope. Jesus is my hope. Lord, I'm I'm, I'm weary today. I'm thinking about giving up, God. But I know in your time, there's going to harvest come. Why? Because the Lord is what? He's faithful. Man, that was such manna to me this week on Monday morning. Such manna. Just like, God, give me that. Do you have a hope? The greatest question most all of us have is, what happens after I die? The Bible answers that question by telling us in Hebrews 9 and 27, it says that men and women, boys and girls, are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Today, by the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can face that judgment with hope. How? By putting your faith and trust that Jesus died on the cross for all of your sin, shame, and stupidity. Everything that you have done that you maybe wish you hadn't done, everything you wish you could erase and make it go away, 
God allowed His Son to experience the judgment of that sin. And Romans says that by the power of God, He was raised to life for our justification. The declaration of Christ being raised from the dead is a reminder to you and I that God has accepted the payment for your sin. Do you know that? That's why Hebrews tells us that He ever lives to intercede for us. That when you feel your shame and your bondage, when you stand before God, you can look to the Christ and say, He took my sin and shame. He's living. It's not some dead lamb back in the past. It's the living lamb. And my faith and my hope of all eternity is in Him alone. Could you say as Paul, He's my hope? Is it your hope? He's faithful. Would you pray with me? Father, in the strong name of Jesus, Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to preach the gospel. Lord, I realize that um, none of us are promised tomorrow. I, I get that. But as we prepare to leave and go, um, God, I just, as I came to pray right now, I just thought, man, Lord, could this be the last time I ever preach to these people? Lord, your word reminds us that the Lord wills today or tomorrow. So, Lord, we know none of us. God, I thank you to declare to them that the hope that they can have of their greatest fear, of the greatest question ever, what's going to happen when I die, can be a, an answer they know. It can become their hope because of Jesus. Lord, thank you for his resurrection. Thank you for his sinless life. Thank you that he ever lives to intercede for us. Thank you that he is a faithful witness, a true, a living witness. Father, right now, strengthen your people. For those that are weary, I pray they will not give up because they know the Lord is faithful and in His time He will send the harvest. Lord, we love You. And man, today we just sit here as, as, a, as a, a group of Your people saying, Lord, our hope is not in us. It's not in preachers. It's not in, in designs. It's not in plans. It's not in our dollars. Our hope is only in Jesus. Thank You for Him. In His holy name I do pray, Lord. Amen. Man, where's your hope? Where's your hope, guys? Is it in Christ? Man, and give Him praise. Have you become weary right now? You think that your life doesn't really matter, that what you've been doing is not really accomplishing anything. Join Isaiah. I'm joining with him, saying, Lord, I'm struggling. Let's remember that God's faithful. Today, again, is this your hope, guys? I hope and pray it is. If it's not, I'd love to talk with you. Brother Todd, others would love to talk with you about Jesus Christ. Let's sing. Let's worship. Come and pray. Come. Let's cry out to God for lost family. Whatever it is, let's pray.